You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. Today's episode is Beliefs and Bureaucrats. I'm Hannah Smith, Senior Counsel at Beckett. And I'm Katie Geary, a Beckett Fellow. What would you say if I told you that getting baptized would cost you your job with the United States federal government? I'd say that sounds pretty unconstitutional. And you'd be right. Today, we're telling you the story of Kavul Tagore, a woman who actually did lose her job with the government because she chose to become a full member of her faith community. Worse, it's a case that could have been avoided had the government simply taken the time to understand a citizen. A citizen whose faith was outside the mainstream. You know, I was born and brought up in New Delhi, India. I was 16 years old when I moved to the state, uh, moved to Houston, Texas. Like most immigrants to America, Kabul found life here was very different than where she came from. Culture was very different. Foods were different, you know. A lot of my friends I left behind. In India, Kaval's parents had already had full careers. Her dad was in the army, had double master's degrees, and her mom had been in education but had stayed home to raise her kids. But coming to the United States meant starting over, learning new skills, taking jobs in different fields. Whatever could, you know, give them a decent earning they, they they went in that direction. At first, it was the difference for her family situation that Kavul noticed the most. Kavul didn't at first register a difference in the religious landscape. Kavul is a Sikh, a member of the Sikh religion. Some people pronounce it Sikh. But the Sikh religion has about 25 million followers worldwide. I mean, in India, things that just didn't matter to us at all because people knew of the Sikh faith. Uh, for me, uh, I've noticed that here, you know, people were not as educated about our faith. For example, my dad uh, wore a turban. In India, it's regarded as a sign of a person with dignity, high morals. However, here, uh, turban is actually being viewed as a very, very negative sign, you know. Um, so in the U.S., especially in Texas, here in Houston, that was the initial thing that I noticed, that in Houston, people are not much aware of Sick faith. But this didn't affect Kovel in her early working years. As an adult, she worked her way from being a cook at Burger King to working as a CPA with the federal government in Texas. I started with the IRS in June of 2004. And that's where this case begins. When I first started to work for them, I was not... Uh, and Amritari, which is equivalent to being baptized. We asked Kavul to explain a little more what Amritari is. So essentially, an Amritari Sikh takes a more disciplined approach to their faith. So Kavul had seen family and friends doing this. I saw them becoming better people. So in her early 30s, she decided to do the same. So it was a lot of questioning and preparing myself that, yes, I, I want to do this. This is the path I want to choose to live my life by, you know? This was while she was working for the IRS, but she knew that her supervisor wasn't familiar with the Sikh religion or the Amrit process. So when she asked him for a few days off for the baptism ceremony, she also gave him some information. While requesting time off, I had mentioned it to my supervisor, uh, taken a uh, pamphlet that the uh, you know, uh, organization out there put out for six to uh, educate other Americans, other uh, you know, fellow citizens as to what a baptized Sikh verse on them. So I had taken this pamphlet with me and I had shown it to my supervisor saying, 
I'm requesting time off to go take Amrit uh, to get baptized uh, in my faith. And then when I'll come back, you know, I'll be wearing these uh, five articles of faith on me. The five articles of faith are also known as the five Ks because in Punjabi, they all start with a letter K. The articles are an outward symbol of devotion to the Sikh faith. So those five articles are Kada, which is a bracelet, Kes, which is uncut hair, Kanga, which is a small comb that's kept in the hair, Kirpan, and uh, Kuchera, which is like a, a, a short, you know, shorts or briefs. But it was the Kirpan that would catch everyone's attention. As Kavil describes it, it's a small blunt blade. The length can vary from person to person, though virtually all six, including Kavil, believe that they must carry kirpans of at least three inches. An Amritari Sikh wears the kirpan as a symbol of defense, not of himself or herself necessarily, but of others, of the defenseless. So Kavil took her days off to take Amrit. Then she showed up at work as scheduled. Because she worked for the IRS, the building was a federal building with the standard security procedures. You know, at the IRS building, at federal buildings where I used to work at, they have a metal detector that one would go through in order to get to our workplaces. So I went through the metal detector. It didn't beep or anything. I grabbed my laptop from the belt and I went up to the 18th floor where I used to work at. So naturally, she didn't think anything of it. She just went up to work as usual. But then... My supervisor actually came uh, to see me and uh, was very surprised. Uh, he asked me, how did I make it here? And I told him that I just went through the usual security check and I, uh, you know, came up here. And so he, he was very surprised. He said, I had not expected you to clear the security check. He was talking about her kirpan. See, there's a rule in federal buildings that prohibits blades above two and a half inches unless they are there for some lawful purpose. Kavil had explained it to her supervisor beforehand, though. So I think it's a little strange, it's a little off, actually, that he waited until she came back from the scheduled time off to talk to her about this kirpan and this rule. And he didn't leave it there. He told Kavil he needed a written explanation for the kirpan, what it is, why it's worn, and all of that. Kirpan in Punjabi also, it's uh, made up of two words, kirpa and an, you know, kirpan. And uh, the word itself means, kirpa means grace and an means honor. So, you know, for a Sikh to wear a kirpan, it's a reminder to live life gracefully and live a just life. And then her supervisor told her that she needed to work from home until they had figured all this out, whether she could bring her kirpan with her back to work. They being the federal government. So Kavil started working from home like this in April 2005. She could tell things weren't quite right, though, so she teamed up with a lawyer just in case. She got a letter from the IRS telling her that she had to report to work in person on January 30th, 2006. But... But she couldn't bring her kirpan with her. In other words... There were only two options. One option was, don't practice your religion and you'll have your job. Or uh, you can practice your religion, but you won't have this job. Well, she showed up wearing her kirpan. And they wouldn't let her go up to her office. 
The security guards were actually waiting for her, and when she arrived, they wouldn't even let her go through the metal detector. The same metal detector that she had gotten through, no problem, just nine months earlier. So from that day onwards, they declared me uh, evil, yes. Absent without leave. It means she wasn't at work, but it was unexcused. But she wasn't fired either. And that caused her a lot of anxiety along with financial insecurity. You don't, you don't know if they'll get rid of you tomorrow or maybe they'll keep on dragging this for another year. And while all this was going on, I cannot really go and work for somebody else. But I also wasn't collecting any pay from them as either. So it was difficult. And in that moment, you know, I had to really decide what should we, what should I do, you know. Well, a few months later, in July 2006, the IRS officially fired Covell, and she decided to sue. Covell was first working with sick lawyers, but soon they realized that they needed some reinforcements. They needed local counsel. And why is that, Hannah? Well, because local counsel is necessary for filing in the local courts. You have to have a lawyer who's licensed to practice in that area. Scott Newar is a Texan who practices civil rights and employment law. He was a natural choice, but when it came to the sick community... This was uh, completely new territory for me. Well, the Beckett Fund had worked a lot with the sick community, so it made sense for us to get involved. And we knew just a little bit about RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was going to be a big part of this lawsuit. Covell told us that no one had ever made the same kind of request to the IRS, a request to wear a kerpon to work. So it was totally unprecedented. So I, I kind of felt like because the decision makers who ever made the decisions, they probably have never heard of uh, sick fate or came across anyone with a sick background. Um, they're making a decision ignorantly. And that, more than anything, is why she decided to make this into a lawsuit. She thought maybe if they really looked at it and if they understood her faith, they would be on her side. This was a question of identity. That's Daniel Blomberg, counsel at Beckett. Was she going to be rejected for who she was? And she couldn't, she couldn't leave herself behind. The lawsuit started in the district court in Texas. I was actually optimistic. Scott, as local counsel, took the lead. The federal judge to whom the case had been assigned uh, is... Um, a very well-respected jurist in the Southern District and across the country. He actually handled the Enron trials. He has a reputation for being conservative, but, but being very fair. And um, I had been in front of him on other cases and, and felt that we had a, a decent chance. The government made their argument based on a statute. The government said uh, 18 U.S.C. 930, the federal, this federal criminal statute, bars any dangerous weapon uh, that, that is anything that can be used for is readily capable of causing serious bodily injury from coming into federal buildings. And so there was an exception. There's an exception within that statute for pocket knives that are with blades of two and a half inches or less. Covell's kerpon had a three-inch blade, but it's blunt like a butter knife. If you look at her kerpon, you see it's a, a short, basically a butter knife. It's not danger to anyone. Which is what Covell had been saying from the very beginning. But more than that, Scott and the Beckett lawyers presented some interesting information. Which is that they regularly allowed longer blades in federal buildings. The fact of the matter is that the federal building in Houston, this particular federal building and other federal buildings, there was testimony in the record, had allowed in longer blades. Um, there were box cutters 
there were letter openers, there were scissors, all types of longer bladed instruments in the IRS building in which Mr. Gore worked. To sum it up, the federal government has a statute that bans blades above a certain length, two and a half inches, in federal buildings. And that's what the government rested their case on. Even though in this case, there were clear instances where they hadn't enforced this ban on other employees. Exactly. So Scott Neuer and Beckett argued what exactly? Well, they argued that she had a right under RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to wear her kirpan. So RIFRA says that if there's a burden on your religious exercise, then the government has to prove that they have a really good reason, a compelling reason, to put that burden on you. She was fired from her job. She lost her ability to pay the bills. And so the next step was the question of whether or not the federal government had a really good reason for forcing her to violate her faith and didn't have any other way of accomplishing that reason other than forcing her to violate her faith. So Scott and Daniel said, wait a second, they obviously don't have a good reason to stop her from wearing her kirpan, which is basically just a butter knife. They had to show that Miss Tagore couldn't carry her kirpan and do her job without endangering the lives of other people there at the facility. And they just couldn't show that. Then when it came to accomplishing their goal, keeping the building safe, there was room for them to do that without forcing Covell to go against her beliefs. Clearly, they've let in box cutters and cake knives before. They must have a way. That's exactly right. But the district court ruled against Covell. The judge focused on this idea of sincerity, saying, well, the kirpan doesn't really have to be three inches. So she had a long practice of wearing a kirpan that was that had a blade length of uh, at least three inches. And uh, the district court did not credit that practice. Um, and it did not credit the testimony of other Sikhs, um, affidavit and deposition testimony that said that a kirpan, to be a true kirpan, had to have a blade length of at least three inches. But the problem here is, that's not really how the sincerity question works in the courts. When you're addressing the question of sincerity, the real question is, is this credible? Are they really telling me the truth about what they believe? You don't get to go behind that and say, well, is this really a true belief? So it's not whether the religious practice itself is rational or authentic. It's about whether the belief behind that practice is sincere. That's right. So the courts look at the credibility of whether or not this person is sincere in this religious belief. So what about someone who actually does come up with a fake belief to get an advantage? Well, that has happened, and the courts are required to treat these things on a case-by-case basis. And some courts have said, look, that's not a sincere religious belief, and we're not going to credit that. So here, that's what they said in the lower court. You know, they said Covell's uh, belief is not sincere. And so she got a negative ruling in the district court and she decided to appeal. So she went up to the Fifth Circuit. Here we were in the Fifth Circuit uh, in December of 2012, getting ready for oral argument. Um, Oral argument, I believe, was going to be in February of 2013. And in the middle of December of 2012, FPS... FPS stands for Federal Protective Service all of a sudden issues this directive that changed the policy or at least 
formally changed the policy um, and said, yes, in fact, um, we will give – we will no longer have a categorical ban on uh, a religious item such as a kirpan coming in to, with a two-and-a-half-inch blade of two-and-a-half inches or longer coming in. After years of repeating that this is a categorical no for anything resembling a kirpan, the government suddenly changed their tune. Suddenly they said, well, you know, we'll consider these things on a case-by-case basis going forward. It was a bizarre thing to change a policy while that policy is being considered in court. But that's exactly what they did. As Scott put it, it was really a gift. In the district court, they said there's no less restrictive means because we need this uniformity. We need this um, categorical ban um, to prevent guard discretion. Well, here they were saying, no, we can look at it on a case-by-case basis. All of the arguments that they had made in the district court were now shown to be disingenuous. Scott and Beckett went to New Orleans. That's where oral arguments were held. And that day was very significant for Covell, in large part because so many sick friends came out to support her. I remember a big bus uh, from Houston that, that morning and from, from other neighboring places, Mississippi, New Orleans, uh, Lake Charles, Alabama. Six in uh, those states also gathered up and showed up there to, to support me for this, for this battle. Covell didn't go inside the courthouse because she was wearing her kirpan. And the same statute that said she couldn't work in a federal building with a kirpan said that she couldn't go into a federal courthouse with her kirpan. It was a very, very emotional uh, day, of course. Um, room full of six. And, uh, you know, the first thing I remember, one of the uh, judges had asked, how did all these six got into the uh, courthouse, you know, but a few of us that were wearing our kirpans and didn't want to take off, they were actually standing with me outside of the courthouse uh, that day. I think that their presence sent the message that, you know, we we are not going to be uh, silenced on this question. We're going to stand here, we're going to sit here peacefully, but we're going to let you know that, that we are... Um, We are tired of these years of being treated with discrimination and humiliation and harassment on this issue. During the oral argument, the government's new policy was front and center. And the Fifth Circuit basically said to the government, you've completely undermined your own argument by creating this new policy. Coming out of oral argument, Covell's team felt very optimistic. Scott Noor is an amazing, amazing lawyer. You know, here he's he's a Jewish person who's helping a sick. So when he came out, I remember um, there was a lot of people there. People were shaking hands with Mr. Noir and you know thanking him. Community, other community members were thanking him for job well done. In the end, the Fifth Circuit sent the case back down to the district court. The Fifth Circuit didn't agree with the district court's conclusion about Covell's sincerity. And because the new policy undermined its justifications for the law in the first place, the district court needed to rehear the case again. So another trial in the same court with the same judge that had decided the case against her in the first place. But now there was a question. Was Ms. Tagore going to be able to attend her own trial to protect her own faith? Remember how she didn't go into the courthouse for the Fifth Circuit oral arguments? Well, this time she wanted to be in the courtroom for the second trial, but she needed special permission because of her kirpan. So the Beckett lawyers asked the judge to let Covell in. 
Well, the judge told them to ask the U.S. Marshals Service. But then the U.S. Marshals Service said, No, you can't come in unless a judge gives you special permission. It came back full circle, came to our judge and said, Judge, can you let us in for our own trial? And the judge eventually said, yes, I'll let you in. But there were conditions. One of them was that Kaval had to go to the courthouse a few days before to present herself and her kirpan. When she did... They grabbed her arm, they pinned her arm to the side, and they started vigorously questioning her, asking her if she was an American citizen, asking if she would be willing to obey the law. She was essentially assaulted for expressing her faith and obeying a court order. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I'd never seen anything like that before. And even after they finally let her in, she had to be accompanied by marshals the entire time. We had marshals um, standing in the courtroom when she uh, walked in, accompanying her in and out of the courtroom, accompanying her to the bathroom, accompanying her um, out as we sort of sat in a conference room as we were discussing the case. I believe the marshal was actually sitting inside the conference room with her. Uh, so it was demeaning and it was, uh, it was sort of further evidence of the reason we needed to bring this lawsuit to begin with. Now there's been all this back and forth. The case was at the district court, then the Fifth Circuit, and now it's back at the district court. And all of this has taken years. It was a roller coaster. So they get back to the district court again for the second trial. We had come to the court, you know, we're about to start trial, and then the parties said, you know what, I think, Judge, that we may be able to settle. We're close enough. So we went in and we did days of settlement discussions came back, settled, and the, the court banged the gavel. And the parties settled. Just like that? Exactly. And all because of this new policy directive that the government put in place themselves. This directive that said that in the future, they could make these decisions on a case-by-case basis. Their whole case was essentially gutted. So the case was over. But the strangest part is that this kirpan, this little thing that had been at the source of the lawsuit for years, the judge had never even seen it. After all of that, after the, the gavel had, been, had come down, the judge said, very respectfully, he asked Ms. Tagore if she would approach the bench. And she did. And again, very respectfully, he asked her if he could see her kirpan. So I said my prayers and I took it out and I approached the bench and I showed it to him. And the judge, the same judge who first gave them this negative decision, he just ran his finger over the dull blade. And I had thought, man, if he would have just (laughs) done this years ago, you know, maybe he would have been more understanding about it, more understanding towards it, you know. And then I was thinking he would not have rendered that decision that he did, um, which was ruled against us years back. Everyone involved in this case agreed that the lawsuit really stemmed from widespread ignorance about the Sikh community. Sikhs have been living here uh, in America for over 100 years or so. And our communities, especially our government, should understand that we are part of American fabric. And yes, we practice, we look different, you know, because guys tie turbans, but we are as American as they are. And this case and its outcome, I think, has hopefully helped to erase some of that misunderstanding. These barriers to access, barriers to full citizenship, that the Beckett Fund was able to help tear down and help to restore equality for the Sikh community in ways that should have been there all along, and also protect religious liberty for everyone. But even though the policy changed, 
um, that the government said, you know, in the future they'll consider things on a case-by-case basis, that six can maybe hope for access to federal buildings. Kaval Tagore never got her job back. No, she didn't. And she paid a very steep price for practicing her religion. I think that's really the next frontier here is how do we make it so that a governmental employee like Ms. Tagore doesn't have to lose her job to, you know, doesn't have to face that choice of can I practice my beliefs, can I practice my religion, or can I serve the United States? That was the choice that she was put to, and that's where the Fifth Circuit got it wrong. Um, that was, that's still a huge, uh, painful side to this, to this case. I think that painful side to the case is actually also what makes it really inspiring. Uh, Kaval Tagore spent years of her life fighting this injustice, and not really for herself, but for others. Even if this case started out as something about Kaval and her job and wearing her kirpan in the federal building, she quickly realized its impact. And so the victory is, well, it's a victory for all American six, and that made it worth it. I wanted to make sure that tomorrow somebody else, you know, my, my nieces, my nephews, or next generation, when they go into these jobs, you know, that uh, they, they, don't, they don't go through what I went through, meaning they don't have to make a decision of choosing religion or work. I think as a sound citizen of this country, one can do both. Thank you to Covell Tagore, Scott Neuer, and Beckett's own Daniel Blomberg for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious liberty for all. For more information on this case, our work, and stream of conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Hannah Smith and Katie Geary. Thanks for joining us.